We come to the end today of this short four-week series that I've been preaching on, on the church, pictures of the church. Today, or yes, last week we looked at the church as the temple of God, and today we're considering the church as a royal priesthood. I'm going to read from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 9. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone. The one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now, to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. And a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. You are a chosen people. You are, as the King James puts it, a peculiar people. And that doesn't just mean odd. For a few of you it does, but for the most of you, it, no, I'm kidding. <clears throat> when he says a peculiar people, it, we're peculiar in the sense that we're unique. Out of all the people in the world, God has called us into relationship with him and desires to use us in service in his kingdom, we become then as a peculiar people, a royal priesthood. Now, what Peter declares here in the verse I just read is, is that we are a royal priesthood. And the imagery here is really from the Old Testament, isn't it? I think of, of the priesthood, I think of the Old Testament priests. It was a mediatorial position. They represented the people to God and offered sacrifices on their behalf and offered them to God on the, on the part of the people. And then from God, they were called to bring absolution, the word of forgiveness to the people. The Old Testament priesthood was very select. Qualifications were very stringent. It came from one household, the household of Aaron. But our priesthood is not about the Old Testament, really. It's about the Old Testament fulfilled. It's about a priesthood that he makes of us in the New Testament period. He calls us a royal priesthood. I find that to be an interesting term. It almost seems to me to be a contradiction in terms. I mean, if you're royalty, you're part of the ruling class, right? And most of the kings that I've read about were served by others. And the royalty, those who were of that royal family, of the royal household, 
they got preferential treatment. And yet, as royalty, as children of children of the king of kings, were also called to be a priesthood. And the priesthood was a serving class of people, was it not? They were called to be servants of others. There's a paradox here, and it's a biblical paradox. The fact is that there are many places in Scripture that, that provide attention for us, don't they? They pull us in two directions, and this is one of those. We're royalty, and yet we're a priesthood at the same time. Unfortunately, the church developed a very twisted concept of the priesthood. In fact, the Protestant or biblical uh, concept of, of the priesthood we owe largely to Luther. But before that, it had gotten to be very twisted because they considered them ro- themselves royalty in that rather than being ministers of others, they wanted others to serve them. They wanted others to look up to them. They wanted others to consider them as, as great. But in the time of Luther, he came to understand that the priesthood isn't of one family. It isn't select in that way. But the priesthood of believers is universal. All men are called to be servants, priests of the Most High God. And we are royalty. We're related to the king, if you will. We belong to the King of Kings. We are children of the Holy God. But we recognize that this is by grace, isn't it? Not because of something we've earned. Not because of something special that we are within ourselves. I think of what John writes in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. I love this verse. Well, I mean, I love all the Bible, but... This one just, it just, it's really special. He says, how great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. And that is what we are. He goes on and says, the reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. But think of that. That, the first two words there, how great, They come from a Greek word which literally translates of what world? John was so amazed by the love of God that it it seemed to be otherworldly. There was nothing in earth that could compare to that kind of love that God showed us when he sent his son. In fact, it says that the Father has lavished this love on us. What do you think of when you think of something lavish? I think of something extravagant to the point of wastefulness. He lavished salvation on us. He lavished his love for us, on us through his son, Jesus. And you know, the interesting thing is, Paul says the same thing in in Ephesians talks about the love of God lavished on us or redemption being lavished on us. And, and it says that it was done in all wisdom, which, which tells me 
that God knew exactly what we needed. He knew exactly how far he would have to go to provide for us, to show us his love. And he was willing to go to that extreme. That's why it's of what planet, of what world. It's otherworldly because this love transcends all other loves. And John just expresses utter amazement in those words. God has lavished his love on us to make us his children. We are children of the King of Kings. And yet, being made his children, becoming royalty by his grace, we're also called to serve him, to serve him willingly and freely and with great joy. We are not only royalty, but a priesthood. Martin Luther wrote a treatise on Christian liberty. And in that treatise, he posed two theses, which at first glance will again seem contradictory. But they aren't. He says, first of all, a Christian is a perfectly free Lord of all, subject to none. I'll say it again. A Christian is a perfectly free Lord of all, subject to none. We're his children. We're royalty. We're completely forgiven. And in one sense, we can even say we don't owe God anything because he's provided it for us through Jesus. Okay? And yet, experiencing that reality leads us to the second thesis and provides a balance here. The second treatise is this, or the second thesis is this. A Christian is a perfectly dutiful servant, subject to all. Oh, that we had that attitude. I think we kind of like being perfectly free, lords of all, subject to none. But the fact of the matter is that when we understand that and recognize that it's by grace, then it becomes us to recognize and again to appreciate that we now then become perfectly dutiful, dutiful servants, subject to all servants. That's part of the priesthood. Now, the Old Testament priesthood had a hierarchy. There were priests, and then from that group of priests, there was one elected to be the high priest. And the high priest on the Day of Atonement would be the one to go into the Holy of Holies, that small room. There was no light, no windows. In the darkness, he would enter, and there was the Ark of God. And he would take the blood of the animal that had been sacrificed and he would bring it in and he would, I guess you'd say, spray it around the room. He'd dip this little brush into the, into the blood and uh, he would come out pretty much blood-soaked himself, covered by the blood of the Lamb. in the New Testament the high priest is none other than Jesus 
When Christ came as the high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made, that is to say, not a part of this creation. He didn't enter by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood. Having obtained eternal redemption, redemption lavished on us through his shed blood, the only innocent person who ever lived offered himself in your place and mine. And that blood covers us, brings us into relationship with him. And he says the blood of goats and bulls and ashes, a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean, if it may sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean, how much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God, set free, owing no man, and yet owing every man. And hearts moved by him to serve the living God. There is one mediator, that is Jesus, First Timothy 2.5, He is the only one who could offer the sacrifice and he did so with a once for all sacrifice. Didn't have to be annually like it had been until his coming. He offered it once for all. And he made access to the Father for all believers. Do you remember what happened on the day he died? Do you remember what happened in the temple? That curtain, which is the thickness of a hand and sewed with different biases so that it was literally unrippable, God tore in two. Why? Because Jesus had made access to the very holy of holies. He had made access into the very presence of God. He had made access unhindered for you and for me, for all who believe. What a remarkable thing. And then he would enable us to serve the living God and he would motivate us to that service as we recognize and again continue and continue to grow in our appreciation and understanding of Jesus and his work on our behalf. So, in the end then, every priest is a believer. Do you know what that means? Every priest is a believer? No spectators, kids. We're not here to be watchers. We're here to be learners. We're here submitted to God and to the teaching of His Word that we might leave here equipped and motivated to serve Him as priests in the world around us. Priests to our neighbors. Priests to our families. Priests even to those we don't know. There are no spectators. (laughs) If, If just one congregation 
Just one congregation came to understand, to believe, and to put that into practice. I can't imagine the changes that could be made. I'm talking one congregation. We're not a big congregation. But if every one of us here quit being spectators and joined into the priesthood, what kind of difference could it make? I don't know about you, but that excites me. There's just so much potential. And God can use each and every believer for his glory to honor him that his spirit might do the work in other people of bringing them to the Lord and creating faith in their hearts. Now what about pastors? I said there are no human mediators. Is pastor above the congregation? Nope. If I understand it correctly, and I believe in the AFLC, we have this theology correct. I'm a servant as a pastor. I'm called to a priesthood of serving you. And I do so by bringing you the word, by teaching it on Sunday and on Wednesday and whatever, you know, confirmation, whatever other opportunities I have as I go and do visits. I'm also then called to be an equipper of the saints. It was he, God, who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastor teachers to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. There's a practical purpose behind what I would do as your pastor, and that is to, to equip you for doing the works of service that bring honor to him. It's to help, again, motivate you not to be a spectator, but to be a priest. And we then are to offer up spiritual sacrifices to God. You're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. And through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that confess his name. And then from Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Did you ever imitate someone? I've done it sometimes disrespectfully. I'm forgiven of that, by the way, by now. (laughs) But there are times and there are people in my life who I thought, I want to be like him. They say that that's the, the most sincere form of flattery that you want to be like someone else. And we are to be imitators of God as we learn of him, as we see him by faith, as we recognize who he is in what the scriptures teach us. We want to flatter him, honor him, 
as we seek to be like him. And like Christ, we are called to be a humble royalty. Indeed, our royalty is exercised, isn't it, through priestly service. In Revelation 8.3, we read, Another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. We offer those prayers and they come to God and he would answer them. We also offer physical sacrifices. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. He doesn't want us to offer ourselves on the altar and to be burned up. He wants us to offer ourselves to him as living sacrifices that he can use that he can do something with and through, that he can accomplish his will as we would follow him and seek to honor him. During World War II, a church in Germany was bombed and a statue of Christ in the courtyard of that church was severely damaged in the bombing. Both hands were broken off of the statue. Now, instead of replacing the hands the congregation placed a sign on it which read, You are my hands. I love that. The statue stands there. You, believers, you're my hands. In Philippians 4, beginning at verse 10, We read, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you had been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. Now, I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Yet, it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the days, the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even then, or even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid again and again when I was in need. Not that I'm looking for a gift, but I am looking for what may be credited to your account. I have received full payment, even more. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice pleasing to God. That's the priesthood. Offering gifts to serve others, to help them. Given to God as we would give them to those who serve him. And that too is an important part of the priesthood. An old druggist from Springfield, Illinois, made the journey to Washington, D.C. for no other purpose than to see Abraham Lincoln and spin him a few yarns. 
While he'd lived in Springfield, it had been Mr. Lincoln's habit to stop in at the drugstore from time to time to exchange stories with this quaint old man. And one day the druggist discovered that Lincoln usually stopped in when he was on the eve of a difficult law case or when he had some special burden on his mind. Well, the old apothecary was under no delusions as to his own skill as a politician, and he had no requests to make of the president nor suggestions as to how the war should be conducted. But he did have some good stories that were designed to relieve anxiety and armed with a mind full of fun and good cheer, he presented himself at the White House and was given a cordial welcome. Later that night after the dinner, when all the guests had departed the White House, Mr. Lincoln said, Uncle Billy, why did you come to Washington? Just to see you, Mr. Lincoln, the old druggist replied, just to see you and spin you some yarns. Don't you want a post office or some special appointment? The president persisted. No, No, sir, he said, I just wanted to be with you for a little while. With that, Lincoln bowed his head for a moment. And then lifting his eyes, those seemingly infinitely sad eyes, he began to unload his heart to that old druggist. And for an hour he poured into the ear of the man he knew he could trust, all the pain and grief of his soul. One knows what the world may owe to that humble man who assumed a stewardship over another man's grief in the hour of his testing. That druggist was Lincoln's priest. And we have that opportunity too. When I began this series, I shared with you about a woman. Her name was Mabel. She had been the the superintendent of the Sunday school at Faith Lutheran Church in South Minneapolis for many, many years. And she came up to me after that first year that I had served as a teacher of the junior and senior high age. And I just ate it up with a spoon. She said, would you take my place and be the superintendent? And I didn't feel like I had any choice. And and I got bitter. I'm not kidding. I got bitter about it. I kind of held that against her. Well, later on, as I went into seminary, Mabel got sick. And I don't know why, but I just felt the need to go and visit with her. And I did. And I began to visit with her regularly. Now, we had a pastor. We had a pastor. But as I came and I shared from God's word with her, as we worked out my problem with her asking me to be the superintendent, when she felt like she could unburden herself to me, I didn't become her pastor. But by the grace of God, I became her priest. That's way gooder. (laughs) I became her priest. I had the opportunity to minister to her. To open up to her and also to be quiet and listen to her. And our relationship grew. I grew to love her. 
Thank God for the universal priesthood of believers. We are royalty. We are children of the king. We officially represent him to the world. But we are priests too. We are servants of the Most High God. And we are equipped to do his will and to care for others, to feed his sheep, to feed his lambs, and to do so in the name of Jesus. Now our status is because of Christ alone. And our example is also Christ alone. Our motivation is what Christ has done for us. In other words, our motivation is the gospel. And our power is that otherworldly love of God that we have been shown and then can show to others. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Amen.